Welcome to episode 142 of Junk Filter. My name is Jesse Hawken, and my returning guests are the hosts of the Hit Factory podcast. Joining me from San Francisco, California, Aaron and Carly, welcome back to Junk Filter. Thanks for having us, Jesse. We're honored to be back on Junk Filter. Well, I was on your show recently for a program about Richard Gere and Primal Fear, and uh, we're shifting gears for this one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Our subject for today is the 1983 remake of Breathless, directed by Jim McBride, starring Richard Gere and Valerie Kaprisky. Forty years ago, when this film opened, it was generally disliked by critics. The idea of a hotshot, relatively unknown American independent filmmaker remaking Godard's Breathless and as a studio picture was thought of as arrogant at best and heretical at worst. But it wound up having a huge impact on the next generation of American filmmakers. And when you watch it today, I think that this is a fundamental text of modern American cinema. I agree with all of that, Jesse. I will uh, out myself on this program and say that I'm the only one of the three of us, I think, who had not seen the 1983 Breathless uh, before preparing for today's episode. After having watched it now, it is very, very good. I may be uh, something of, I don't know, an outlier uh, amongst the three of us here uh, who still maintains that the original is superior, um, but I think that both of them are doing uh, very interesting things to very different ends. Um, and, and I really did enjoy just how sumptuous, how sexy, how fun this one was. And, uh, you know, you, you mentioned that that word heretical and and. I don't know. There's something interesting about a, a new generation of filmmakers taking something that felt sacrosanct and fucking it up a little bit the same way that Godard did. Uh, so I think that in in the lineage of, you know, this kind of independent, adventurous filmmaking, uh, McBride uh, does right by Breathless as an idea. I will also out myself as a person who adores this movie. I've said on record multiple times that if I was a film and it wasn't Showgirls, Paul Verhoeven's <laughs> delightful film Showgirls, <laughs> it would be McBride's 1983 Breathless. I just adore this movie. And I was so, so excited, Jesse, when you got excited that I was excited about this movie. Um, because I feel like so many people think it's trash and it's just gorgeous. Um, and I think like we can get into, you know, all of the details, but what I will say in terms of like my personal relationship with it is that I love Richard Gere. I have for a very long time. It's why I saw this movie when I was young, um, and then watched it many, many times afterward, um, because it literally swept me away like it left me breathless there are so many times in this movie when I audibly sigh like I'm lightheaded I swoon for this film um and as I was like reading more about uh other films that are related to it you sent a really great piece um which we can talk more about later that mentions uh the Jerry Lee Lewis a biographical film, Great Balls of Fire, which I also watched when I was a child because I was in love with Dennis Quaid. <laughs> so there, there are like, there's a, this movie is a convergence of like so many things that I love and adore. And I used to listen to um, stock cop music and like Jerry Lee Lewis and Big Bopper and all these things when I was a kid too, because I was like an 80 year old man. Um, and this film is like, 
I think to build off of what Aaron says, I love that it's like taking so much of what Godard wanted to do with the original and saying like, yes, that sort of like navel gazing about the making of film is important, but also like, fuck you, <laughs> but also paying loving homage to it. it. It McBride manages to walk this like beautiful line with this film of, you know, at once like having a certain reverence for the original that's very clear and palpable down to the the dialogue being spoken. And also so often is like not degrading it, but is like going in a completely different direction and saying like this thing that you think is prestigious, like I'm going to wrap it in a bunch of like American pop culture and sleaze and it's still going to be like perfect and beautiful and moving. Well, this remake is an inversion of the original Godard film. The Godard original, which we'll talk about a little bit, is a French guy's idea of American culture. And it stars Jean-Paul Belmondo, also an incredibly sexy man, Mm -hmm. a fugitive on the run who's obsessed with American culture, who takes up with his girlfriend, who's an American, played by Gene Seberg, who's studying in Paris. In the American remake... It takes place in the U.S., and it's about an American guy who's also obsessed with American culture, who goes on the lam with his French girlfriend who is studying architecture in Los Angeles. Godard dedicated his version of Breathless to monograph pictures, Mm -hmm. which was one of the big B-movie houses. But the film itself is very cerebral. McBride's remake is not just a tribute to B-movies. It is a B-movie. It's also R-rated. Like, it's super sleazy. And uh, that's one of the things I value the most about this movie on a very uh, lizard brain level. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Is that I saw this movie when I was a teenager, the perfect time to watch it. It's the kind of movie that you need to find at three in the morning yeah. to watch. <laughs> <laughs> now the reason we're here as man and woman is to love each other, take care of each other. When love walks in the room Everybody stand up Oh, it's good, good, good Like Brigitte Bardot I've said provocatively on Twitter that the remake is better than the original. I think I want to qualify those (laughs) remarks a little bit. (laughs) Fair. I think it's not fair to say that one is better than the other. I like to look at them as mirror images of one another. That mm. the original Godard version pointed the way for the future of filmmaking. Certainly all the new American cinema filmmakers of the late 60s and the early 70s took major cues. And I would also say that the remake serves a similar function for the next generation of filmmakers. Can we do a lightning round? What are some movies that definitely owe a huge debt to Breathless? What movies wouldn't exist if Breathless didn't exist? One of the earliest ones I can think of is Jonathan Demme's Something Wild. Uh, and by that same token, uh, also David Lynch's Wild at Heart are two movies mm-hmm. that I think are in conversation with each other and very much with this film. I'm going to say something controversial and argue that Big Trouble in Little China is one of those movies. <laughs> <laughs> okay, please elaborate. Um, There is a... a 
a kind of like manic pace to that film that I think um, is drawing from sort of like the right off the bat momentum that this film has and all of the sort of like city scenes and like places and spaces where like the two characters that are you know love interests run off to um, and the sort of spectacle of the entire thing really really felt like breathless like I after watching the 83 McBride movie I was like thinking about other films because you would tee this up and for some reason that one floated into my mind and I was like yeah Big Trouble in Little China is like very much like Breathless there's a ton of romance there's a ton of adventure there's a magical quality to to Breathless that I think you know is very literal in Big Trouble in Little China the the one that jumps to mind the hardest is Quentin Tarantino absolutely yep his yeah his entire vibe seems to come from Breathless the 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 whole idea of like the retro cool the cars the music the fast talking the pop culture references the uh, obsession with comic books like true romance is basically a a, a variation on this theme. Yep. 100%. Right off the bat. 100%. This is essentially, when I, from minute one on, I, this is like the Rosetta Stone for Quentin Tarantino's entire like 90s output. It's just very, very much his vibe, even so much so that, uh, you know, I, I think I uh, found a, a letterbox user who I, I follow who said something like, uh, I guess when Tarantino said that he was a fan of Godard, he really just meant Godard as filtered through this movie. Yes. <laughs> Absolutely. Someone Absolutely. told me that um, the poster for Breathless, one of the original posters, uh, Tarantino has insisted stay up at the New Beverly um, for the last like handful of decades, I think. Um, so, you know, yeah, he loves Godard, but I yeah. think he loves McBride better. He's obsessed with this movie very clearly. We also, I think, uh, may have discussed that uh, Paul Thomas Anderson clearly owes a, a debt of gratitude to this film mm-hmm. as well. Uh, a lot of inherent vice is in this film. Mm-hmm. The way that Paul Thomas Anderson always uses parts of L.A. that don't get filmed, like one of the big things about Breathless is that it takes place in L.A., but it has it doesn't have all that much to do with Hollywood or show business. And it takes place in all these parts of L.A. that weren't really covered Mm -hmm. by filmmakers at the time, like auto wreckage yards and, you know, industrial areas and, you know, seedy neighborhoods and, you know, stretches of highways. It's not um, the glamorous life. I mean, there are very few. uh, You see that big donuts sign is a sort of (laughs) L.A. staple. But, uh, you know, there's it doesn't go to Hollywood or anything like that. It's in really sort of grim parts of L.A. I want to talk a little bit about how this remake came about. When Jim McBride was a young man in the early 60s, like many filmmakers, he thought this was the greatest movie he'd ever seen. It was the movie that made him want to direct movies. He and his screenwriter, L.M. Kit Carson, had worked together in the 60s on a great American independent movie called David Holtzman's Diary, which is a fake cinema verite film that is presented as the work of a self-absorbed filmmaker who is also a huge asshole that uh, L.M. Kit Carson plays. And Gear is kind of the modern 
analog to that. <laughs> like he's a very <laughs> self-absorbed and very obnoxious, except he's not trying to be an artist. In an interview with McBride in the New York Times when Breathless was in production, he explained himself a little bit. McBride said, I had a very hard time for several years after I made this film called Glenn and Randa in 1971, a lesser seen indie film. I drove a cab for a while. I taught film at NYU Graduate School. I made a sex movie called Hot Times. By the way, we have to watch that. Yep. <laughs> I wrote scripts that were never made. When I moved to Los Angeles in the mid-70s, nobody seemed interested in my ideas. I finally decided that the best approach for me was to present the studios with something that already existed. And that's why I suggested a remake of Breathless. I knew the original had a mystique attached to it, even among people who had never seen it. He got the rights from Godard himself in 1978 to do this film. He spent the next few years with Universal Pictures in development hell. And some of the leads that he considered were Travolta, Pacino, and De Niro. But McBride said, quote, Movie stars are terrified that if they make one wrong decision, it will destroy their careers. So it takes them forever to make a decision. And I think a lot of them were also afraid to do the movie with me because I was an unknown quantity. Universal eventually lost interest. The project went over to Orion Pictures, and Richard Gere was also hesitant to work with an unknown director. What won him over was the power that was given to him by the production team to have a hand in rewrites of the script and, importantly, a say in casting. McBride explained what he was trying to say on this movie, and I think we should discuss this a little bit. He said, We feel this is a story about a generation younger than ourselves, an American generation that has lost its place in the world, Kids today can't find jobs. They feel there's no room for them. That's very much the way kids in France felt after the Algerian War, and that's why Breathless appealed to that generation. I hope young people may connect with our movie in the same way. The thing about the Gear character is he's like a product of his environment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, but he's also a gigantic bozo who is, by the way, in his early 30s. He's acting like a teenager in this movie, but he's actually a little bit old to be the kind of guy that he is. <laughs> And it feels to me like this movie was predicting a problem in the future of like people who are just so wrapped up in pop culture as a means of escape, like uh, that, you know, he didn't, um, in the movie, whenever Richard Gere's in a lot of trouble, uh, he immediately retreats to the music of Jerry Lee Lewis. He immediately retreats to fantasies about the Silver Surfer. He thinks of himself as the Silver Surfer. I was joking that this movie is kind of a cautionary tale of what could happen to you if you get too obsessed with Marvel. <laughs> yep. <laughs> or or any pop culture sort of totem in general. I, I get the sense that uh, Richard Gere's character would be like a, a very big film Twitter account or a film mm-hmm. X account, <laughs> I guess we have to say now, maybe. Yeah. No, no, we're going to call it Twitter. <laughs> we are going to. There's... The thing that this movie anticipates that is a a variation on what you're talking about, Jesse, which is something I bring up a lot, which is sort of like the way that people can only kind of engage with political ideology, with even, you know, sort of like material and philosophical ideology through vectors of pop culture. Um, And it's like, you know, very literal things like, okay, like, the notorious RBG like painting, right? <laughs> like, but also, you know, sort of equating figures of current day, our current day political landscape with 
the superheroes that they're seeing in movies. Um, it's a, it's a, it's become sort of like a, a language of uh, online discourse in and of itself. And I think you're right that um, Richard Gere's character in this film kind of anticipates that. I will say for him being a bozo, um, something that's really important to me about Gere's character, Jesse or Jack compared to Michelle in Godard's version is that from the jump, we are meant to be more sympathetic toward Gear's character yep. than we are uh, the character of Michelle. Michelle um, kills a cop in cold blood yep. intentionally uh, within the first you know two minutes of the film. Richard Gear's character Jesse um, does it by accident and panics and even checks to see if the guy is still breathing and he's clearly like very very disturbed by the thing that he did. Um, and so from that from that point on you are supposed to be on this guy's side, um, even though he is, you know, a narcissist and toxically masculine, we shall say. Um, he's not without uh, sort of a, a more present moral cord than Michelle, who I think is just like absolutely detestable um, and, and does not... Uh, does not carry sort of enough charisma for me to, to be on his side past that detestability. And the other thing I'll say about Jesse is that he is a romantic. Even if he is a bozo, he is a romantic. Michelle is not. <laughs> Michelle is not a romantic at all. He is um, lust and uh, envy and he's wanton and he's bitter and Jesse uh on the other hand is he's kind of this like starry-eyed optimist um he's far less cynical than Michelle and it's something I find incredibly charming and I think is a surprise uh for Gear because what we know about him and we talked about this on uh our primal fear episode is that he's a very sort of reserved kind of like straight man typically not like you know bouncing off the walls or or playing a sort of like jack nicholson type and in this movie he is by a landslide the most charismatic and animated i've seen him in any film and he wears it really well this movie is from the perspective of a narcissist and so he wants Monica. He wants to be with her. He wants her to drop everything for him, but he doesn't know anything about her. Mm -hmm. He doesn't care about her future. As far as he's concerned, her future is with him. But he's uh, there's a telling moment where he, you know he's constantly saying, you love me, tell me you love me. And then towards the end of the movie, she says, do you love me? And he says, yeah, sure. Like while he's fixing the car. Mm -hmm. What I mean to say is he's like a character in a video game. He's got missions to go on. Uh, you know, he goes on to the next mission all the time in this movie. He eventually gets a six-star wanted level <laughs> yeah. from all the things that he's doing. But um, he's not serious about uh, her. He's he's momentarily... This is what he's fixated on right now, and maybe he'll get fixated on something else later. But he's a threat to her future. I you much too much. I don't know how he love you in that. It's all right. You're holding tight. But when you love me, love me, why? 
this is the part where I hear the uh, the keys to the horny jail prison yes. uh, jangling <laughs> coming down the hallway. Open um, that cell up, bud. We're gonna we're gonna we're gonna start talking about the the incredible chemistry between these two leads. Uh, I watched a review by Gene Siskel where he said that there was zero chemistry between Gear and, and Kaprisky. In Wild. This movie. I don't know what movie he was watching. <laughs> Gene. One of the reasons why this movie works so well is because of the chemistry between the two actors. And the other knock at the time about this movie was that Valerie Kaprisky was a bad actress. I don't agree. No. I think Ebert even echoed that sentiment, too, and said that she's often seems like kind of lost in some of the scenes and, and looking to gear for some sort of like kind of help. And I don't I don't know if that's true. No, we have to talk about this. This is so incredibly important to to the text of this film. I read several pieces, one of which you shared with me, um, Jesse, that is about the sort of toxic narcissism of Gear's character. The person in this uh, who wrote this piece argues that Monica is nothing but like a mere signifier of what a woman can be in sort of Jesse's narrow minded view of like female existence in society. And I think that's like so vehemently wrong. (laughs) And like and he argues that her performance is terrible, like accidentally but that it works for her being this sort of like vapid shell of like what what jesse thinks a woman should be i completely disagree with that not only do i think that her performance is not shitty accidentally or otherwise i think it's very good i do not agree that she represents a signifier of a woman who has no boundaries and um and no agency of her own I think what she represents is the other side of the coin of being sort of madly, manically uh, in love with someone. He is a man who doesn't think about anything he does, Jesse, and Monica is a woman who overthinks everything. And I relate to that so much. Um, I feel like that's me. And I also am like very attracted to men who don't think about anything that they do. (laughs) Um, And Monica's presence in this movie is important because not only is she an overthinker and um, kind of like a grounding agent for um, for the character of Jesse, but she too is like very lost, um, lost in sort of the spell of being in love, but also kind of like lost in what she wants to do with her life. And um, in the same way that Jesse is, I think, trying to find himself and find a place for himself, she also is. And she's not shy about making statements about what she wants from him or doesn't want from him. And I think her performance is incredible. I think that uh, she's very good in this movie, actually. Mm-hmm. I agree. She had never seen the original Breathless when she was cast, and she kept it that way. She said, I don't want to see it or be inhibited by it. I'm a little nervous as to what the French are going to say about this remake. They're very protective of their movies, and Godard is like a god in France. The chemistry between her and Richard Gere, it's off the charts. Off the charts. The producer, Marty Ehrlichman, who, by the way, discovered Barbara Streisand, he spotted topless photos of Kaprisky in a French magazine. And based on those photos, she was asked to attend an open casting call in Paris. They liked her enough that they flew her to Los Angeles for a screen test. But in that screen test, she and Gere were both naked. 
Only the director, cinematographer, and camera operator were watching. Any other personnel had to stand behind a partition. Gear was not required to perform the scene in the nude, but he did it that way, said Ehrlichman, so that Valerie would feel more comfortable. If that was the reasoning, it worked. (laughs) And she was chosen as the lead because of her willingness to do nudity, having appeared in softcore movies in France. The other uh, amazing thing was that Gear said one of the reasons why he wanted to have her as his co-star is because he wanted to make love to her. She said, we were not acting the love scenes. They were half real. There were rumors during the production of this film that they had a relationship during the production, but they've both denied this. This is the question you always have when actors are doing love scenes. It's like, how much of this is acting? How much of this is real? I think a lot of people get uncomfortable when they see love scenes because they're afraid that it's real. Gear is uh, extremely attractive in this movie. One thing that I love about Breathless is that the man and the woman are both sex symbols to be ogled by all members of the audience. And you don't often see that. Yeah, I think that's part of what makes the film really work is that uh, it gives us a little bit of something for everybody, right? Like there are two of these beautiful people on here. And, uh, you know, from the female gaze, you are as transfixed and swept away by gear as uh, as Kapriski uh, is and vice versa for the male mm-hmm. audience. And I think a lot of guys thought that gear was incredibly hot in this movie too. Mm-hmm. You cannot <laughs> not think that. I mean, he's, he's, <laughs> he looks great in Look this fucking movie. Look at this man. Uh, please permit me for a moment. Um, <laughs> so We're getting the horny jail keys out now. <laughs> I'm, I'm dangling them right here. So like absolutely a hundred percent. You can tell they want to fuck each other. Like, um, the scene in her apartment when Paul is leaving a message and he's like, yeah. I had a great time, Monica, or whatever. And he's just like being a huge dildo. And y- you are looking at uh, Richard Gere and Valerie completely nude and he is kissing her entire body. Um, and you're looking at them peering over her answering machine. And like you... It, it's sex. Like, it's not acting. It is sex. And it's gorgeous and so hot. Um, and the, the, the amount that they want each other is palpable. Um, and so I love that they admitted that because I decided that that was the case regardless. <laughs> like, mm-hmm. um, another thing that's really important um, that came up in uh, one of the articles that you shared with me that was, you know, arguing that uh, Valerie did not do a good job in this movie said like, Oh, she's just like nude the entire film and like scantily clad. And I'm like, "Uh, they both are. (laughs) Um, Richard Gere is just as naked in this movie as, as uh, Valerie. And, um, and he is there to be ogled and grabbed and uh sweaty and like taken in in the same way that she might be in the film um and i think that that's really really important because i i think it is uh a complete uh miss to decide that she is the only one that is scantily clad in this movie i think that's just like too easy and patently wrong um the other thing i want to say is uh a quote that McBride himself mentions um, in that same New York Times piece that we were talking about when he's talking about Jerry Lee Lewis, who just sort of metatextually, for anyone who doesn't know, uh, like married his cousin, 
who was 14, I think, at the time. In the movie Great Balls of Fire, Jerry Lee Lewis is played by Dennis Quaid. He's fucking hot as shit in that movie. Um, And his 14-year-old cousin is played by a very young Winona Ryder. I loved that movie for a million reasons that are probably problematic, um, but we don't need to get into that. So Jerry Lee Lewis has this sort of like metatextual connection to the film and the casting of the film, uh, Breathless, and... Additionally, McBride says of Jerry Lee Lewis's music, Jerry Lee Lewis's music is about sex, breaking through inhibitions, surrendering to the explosive forces inside of you. That's Gear's character in the movie. I would argue that is also Valerie's character because for all of her pushing away of him, her literal slaps of, of uh, Jesse in the face when he's grabbing her, she too surrenders to wanting him um, and admits as much that she loves him in a way that is so problematic for her that she has to call the police on him so that he will flee. Yeah. <laughs> uh, their sexual chemistry is like the hottest I've ever seen on film. And I think is so important for like how romantic this movie is. It would not be as high romance and high drama if they did not have the chemistry that they have. The scene that Carly's bringing up about the answering machine is uh, uh, one of my favorites in the movie. Actually one, it is yes. Hot as shit. The, the sensuality, the desire there and how palpable it is. You know, there's these two beautiful tanned bodies nude and, you know, kissing one another, but there's something else going on there that I, I really love in Kaprisky's performance, which is that at the same time that gear as Jesse is getting, uh, more and more distracted and frustrated by this other man who's like talking about her and their sexual encounter. You can see that Kaprisky is actually being really turned on by it, by like this like subterfuge almost, or this kind of indiscretion where she's hearing another man who like, you know, pines for her and is sort of obsessed with her while she's in this like really uh, like unhinged like expressive like sexual encounter in the moment and that's what women want i I know that's what i say it's like it's it's very hot it's sexy it's like uh yeah but but there's just a, a layer there to it that i think can be so easily missed but you can tell within her performance and she's able to uh effectively show that in the midst of this kind of steamy scene and i think is evidence of a lot going on uh, with her character and, and in her mind as she's trying to convey the sort of uh, interiority of that encounter and experience. I feel like this movie has a sort of an understanding about why people get involved with people they shouldn't get involved mm-hmm. with. Yes. Yeah. Deeply. <laughs> I love the beginning of yes. this film, the way that it starts with gear uh, stumbling out of a bar. Uh, the first time we get a good look at him, uh, it starts on his shoes and then moves up to him pouring some peanut M&Ms into one hand and then washing it down with some beer. It's so good. And it's like, remember, this guy's 33, right? <laughs> like he's acting, this is the sort of like thing that a 16 year old would do. We instantly get this idea of this guy as a love him and leave him impulsive, like man child. He's like singing to himself. He's awash in this like red neon light. He's in a kind of like um, 70s Vegas era 
Elvis coated outfit, right? <laughs> he has one of those like ruffled like Dean Martin shirts from yeah. when they were on yeah. like those roast shows that he would always wear. Uh, and it's bright red and he's in these powder blue slacks that have a stripe down them. They're bell bottoms. I mean, he's like, if we're talking about Tarantino, like he's Elvis coded <laughs> immediately. Yeah. And he's like moving his hips and he's like, bebopping and he's got this energy that um again is like so so distinct in this movie for gear and something that i think is a nice sort of um connection to the original to godard's original so much of the dialogue in godard's original along with the music which uh for much of the film is jazz is scatting it's like the French rhymes in often cases um, and it sort of pops back and forth between the characters. And then you have the jump cuts, which add a whole other layer of that sort of like jazz um, element to, to the film itself. And this movie is doing that, um, but slightly differently. It's um, got sort of like a more rock and roll vibe. So there's still like a, a lot of pop and a lot of vigor to the dialogue and to the music and to the like, kineticism of the characters like the movement that gear um makes in the film but it's a it's a it's playing in a different genre and it starts right off the bat and i mean it just goes like literally the movie is like zero to a hundred also i love the uh the way the title card comes up while he's like dancing across the street the font that's used in the opening credits is like from the the dialogue bubbles in a silver surf yes. comic yep. he's talking to himself the way that superheroes in comic books all talk to themselves like he's uh he's marvel poison in some ways <laughs> you know yeah the the just kind of like verve and fun of that opening scene though is so good and and i think actually one of the moments where like you know when it starts out i i found myself just like grinning like ear to ear um the the very famous just sort of like you know his his beautiful eyes peeking out from behind the silver surfer comic that he then flips down as soon as he gets the signal from his you know kind of accomplice to steal the car so good and um you know he hot wires a nice pink porsche and drives off into the night and he's he's uh, almost monosyllabic he's talking about monica and mexico monica i'm going to mo- go to monica i'm going to find monica we're going to mexico mexico monica mexico and and then he throws on um jerry lee lewis's song breathless and starts lip syncing to it and this is where i fell in love with the movie the color coding bright bright red totally artificial Rear screen projection, and I want to say right off the bat, I'm a return guy for rear screen projection. <laughs> yes. So this movie, though it's not a musical, is coded like one. We need to get back to this in cinema. I completely agree. Couldn't agree more. The musical elements of this film, I think, are are really key to understanding it. I can't watch this film and not think of just like technicolor, explosive <laughs> musical sequences from the 40s and 50s the musicality of this movie works not just because of the sort of sound collaging and and the visuals of the film but Richard Gere as we discussed on our Primal Fear episode um can actually sing and dance which if you've seen Chicago you know um and I was re-watching and realized how evident that is in this movie because of how much moving he's doing and he's sort of, you know, skipping from like car to car and across sidewalks and like 
pirouetting through junkyards and it just feels like I don't know, like Gene Kelly in American in Paris or something like that. It's just, it's perfect. The location work also drives this home because so much of the movie takes place on gigantic murals in Venice Beach. Yes. This is probably one of my favorite color movies. Richard Klein shot two other horny jail classics for me. Uh, King Kong, the remake with Jessica Lange, and Kathleen Turner in Body Heat. And this film also... uh, is in line with some of the other great mid-80s luridly colorful movies that were shot in L.A., like Repo Man and To Live and Die in L.A. Like, everything seems to be coming together. Like, this is how you're supposed to film L.A. Bright, bright greens, bright, bright pinks, bright, bright reds and blues. Like, imagine a sort of uh, beautiful Vincent Minnelli musical from the 50s with incredibly hot sex scenes. Yes. (laughs) That's what I want. That is all I want in a movie, ultimately. (laughs) So, so Gear is driving uh, through the desert, and he earns the attraction of a highway patrolman who gives chase. The Porsche crashes. Gear knows the cop wants him to get out of the car. He's, he discovers in the stolen car that there's a gun. And while he's handling it, it discharges. Mm-hmm. And we don't see the cop get shot. Suddenly, we see the back window of the Porsche break with a big bullet hole in it. Gear emerges and discovers what he's done, and he is remorseful about it, but he's also on the lam. And now he's now, not only is he a guy who stole a car, but now he's a guy who shot a cop. But he still goes to LA to go find Monica. This, in fact, this may uh, double his resolve to do what he's doing. Yes. Uh, mm-hmm. I, I think it's interesting, too, that a lot of uh, the future of what Jesse finds out a lot about what's about to happen to him through media that he finds out from newspapers and from television the, uh, the that it's getting worse and worse for him. Like he sees that the cop's been shot when he opens up a newspaper. Then he opens up a paper later and sees his face in the picture and that the cop is dead and he's the suspect. Uh, you know, he, he stumbles across the news on TV and he quickly turns off the TV so that Monica doesn't know what he did. But then he looks out the window and sees the neighbors have the TV on. Like the net is closing in. And one thing I really like about this movie is that... Uh, the, the good times and the, the manic sort of behavior that this guy is living through is accompanied by increasing and mounting paranoia. Yes. Also, the car chase is very cartoonish. Like, they've ramped up the speed of the yeah. uh, film for that, so there's <laughs> yeah. nothing realistic about anything that's happening. I, I, I really love the pursuit and then the actual, like, you know, we'll, we'll call it a shootout for our purposes here, but uh, when I think of Breathless, uh, the, the Godard version... Uh, the the scene in which Belmondo kills the cop is one that just lives in in my mind. Just those quick three cuts uh, where we you know the camera kind of follows down his back and close up. We see the gun, we hear it fire, the cop falls, and then he's sprinting across a field. And for the purposes of this movie, I was you know seeing it for the first time and saying, I really hope they get this part right. And they did not disappoint. That shot when the gun discharges, which is out of the the back of the the Porsche. We see the cop, and then it gently rack focuses onto the window, which then shatters with the gunshot, is one of my favorite things in the entire movie. I I was taken aback by this more so than just about any other shot in this gorgeous, gorgeous movie. And also kind of like, for better, for worse, a a cinematic proxy to passive voice, right? Like, (laughs) you don't actually see him shoot the cop directly. And um, it's very really, intelligent that way. I loved that detail. Yeah. Again, it, it makes us more immediately sympathetic to him than we are to Michelle. 
Need I remind you that in Pulp Fiction, a gun accidentally gets discharged and shoots a guy and blows yes, the Yes, that's yes, it right. does indeed. Mm-hmm. I think it's like the same giant silver gun, too. Probably. And it's, and it's, it's uh, the shot selection is uh, kind of, you know, considered with the same level of passivity where we don't oh actually God. see Vincent, you know, pull the trigger. We just see the blood splatter out the back of the, of the vehicle. Mm-hmm. The movie's very careful not to sort of definitely explicate that he killed a cop. You right. Know? We're still supposed to like him. Yes. So um, Jesse Lujak makes it all the way to L.A. Uh, he sneaks into her apartment building. And funnily enough, when this movie was released on video in the U.K., the censors removed some shots from the scenes where he hotwires a car and when he breaks into her apartment with a lockpick because they're both fairly instructive depictions on how to do it. <laughs> they I, really are. I noticed that. The, this is one of the more... Uh, one of the more in-depth lock pickings that I've ever seen. I was like, and, and as I saw it, I was like, oh yeah, there are two pieces to that lock pick, aren't there? You kind of have to set them up that way. And when he initially like breaks into the Porsche too, like oh, the yeah. way he gets into the window is like, yeah. that's how you do that. <laughs> but in Britain, they were like, no, 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 no. <laughs> we have to take this, this how-to manual part of the movie out. <laughs> It's so bad. He busts into her apartment. She's not there. Uh, he takes a Polaroid picture of himself, and he leaves her a yellow rose, which he has in his teeth when he's breaking in. Carly, what would happen if uh, Richard Gere broke into your into your apartment with a yellow rose? Um, I would fucking die. <laughs> I would fucking die, Jesse. Can I say this film has so many images in it that just like live rent free in my head, but also I think are just like beautiful beautiful like moments of like high romance and and just like pure sleaze all at once one of those moments one of those images that like I could just have as a painting in my house is Richard Gere sweaty red shirt sleeves rolled up yellow rose in his mouth picking the lock to Monica's apartment like I just fucking love it. Like that is the kind of like mania and desperation that I want from love. And then like to leave her a photo of him naked after he's showered in her shower, hair sopping wet, a shit eating grin, the Polaroid light blasting him leaves the photo throws the note of the other guy right. who left her a yeah. note w- and said, Monica, you're my favorite student. I was going to say like, lest we forget that he literally rips the other picture and steals her and rips throws it, out the throws other it guy. in the fucking garbage <laughs> so she can see it in the garbage, puts the rose like on a table and, and the photo of himself right there. I mean, yeah. come on, come yeah. on. <laughs> they met in Las Vegas. Well, she was on a trip to Las Vegas uh, while she was at college, and she had a fling with Jesse. Uh, and then a few days later, a couple of weeks later, Jesse's now in L.A. seeking her out. But she's gone back to the real world. Like, she's in school. She's, in, she's going to be an architect. She has, uh, she's, she has her eyes towards a degree. And she has a professor boyfriend who's probably going to help make her future a possibility. So Hurricane Jesse rolls into L.A., shows up at her exam and basically disrupts it climb you know goes into the into the lecture room and as being a total bozo like moving tables around <laughs> knocking the guy's drink all over his pants and basically fucking things up for her 
And then he waits for her outside and they start talking and he says, come to with me to Mexico. You know you want to come to Mexico. Your future's not, um, as an architect, your future's with me in Mexico. Let's go. And she's like the voice of reason. She says, Las Vegas was a holiday. This is my life. And Gear says, Las Vegas was real life. This is a holiday. Mm-hmm. I fucking love it. <laughs> <laughs> it's a very good line. It's so good. Yeah. And then he goes, uh, when she gets away from him, finally, then we see him, like, hitchhiking like a jackass, like, with a cigarette going, like, (laughs) Jesus, he's such a bozo throughout this film. Like, he's, like, hustling, you know, he's shaking his hips, waiting to get picked up. (laughs) And when he gets in the car, and magically on the radio is, like, a police officer was shot in the desert. He's in critical condition in the hospital. Police are looking for a suspect. And he's, like, "Uh uh-oh. He's trying to get paid for a previous car theft. He goes to this like weird <laughs> processing. I don't even know what their business is mm. in that scene. They like, said he did, coin, the, it's like coin and stamp center <laughs> yeah. or something. An upgrade from a, like the travel, the travel uh, agency. Like agency yeah. in, in, something, yeah. Some sort of coded place where bureaucracy takes place. That's all we need to know. And there's a woman working at the counter who like instantly hates him. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> as soon as the the cops show up like two minutes later because they've you know they've they've they're on to him they haven't quite caught up to him yet and she immediately says oh yeah there was a guy like that in here a few minutes ago like she immediately sells him out Here's horny jail moment number one for me. Yes. Cut to a scene where Valerie Kurpersky is alone and topless in her apartment. And this Philip Glass music is playing. The breeze is blowing through her hair. She's got an ice cube that she's rubbing rubbing all over herself. (laughs) She's crunching on the ice. Uh. And it's like ASMR land. Like wind chimes, crunching ice, beautiful naked woman. Her hair blowing in the wind. Like, it feels like she's being beckoned to be with Jesse. Mm-hmm. Like, he's got his hooks in her mind. And, you know, she knows what her reason for being in L.A. is. But she can't get this guy out of her head. And they communicate that so nicely in that scene. It is like, and, you know, it's just the the, the hotness is off the charts in this scene. It's so hot. And also, I think what this movie gets so right, both from the male perspective and the female perspective, but I will speak from the female side of things, is the, for lack of a better phrase, like the kind of like wistfulness that you have, it's almost cartoonish, right? When you are, when you want someone. And like, I have like very literally like been like on a chair in my room spinning around just like thinking about a guy (laughs) like I've done that (laughs) and like you know in your underwear and like just sort of like laying on your bed and like twiddling your hair or whatever like that's like a trope sure but like that's also fucking real life and like I think that the the thing that is just so enjoyable about this film is that McBride knows that all of these moments are incredibly melodramatic, incredibly cinematic, incredibly fantastical, just so much spectacle. And yet they are also like 
very real experiences of being in love and of just like kind of the the spell that you are under when you want someone um and it doesn't necessarily make sense but that's kind of the whole point and i love how sexy that scene is but i also love how like intimate and personal it is like she's really like considering things and she's thinking about him and um it's just it's so many different emotions at once and then like ultimately just like incredibly fucking hot she's just like rubbing an ice cube on her naked chest and then like sticking that ice cube in her mouth like and it's like pink everything's pink and red and like (laughs) shadows and she's like walking across her apartment topless and she's just like oh mon amour like she's just like (laughs) i fucking love it but it's not cheese no like it's not like skinamax kind of cheese you know like even though this movie like tips over into soft core a few times uh it's also very erotic and very beautiful and compelling and you know when you're in love it feels like you're in a movie and here's uh, a movie where somebody's in love like you know if you're lucky you've experienced this kind of longing for someone yes yes but here's the thing that's so funny about this scene that piece of music was used without permission (gasps) according to philip glass he filed suit against orion pictures for copyright infringement unfair competition and fraud he asked for actual damages of $1 million and punitive damages of $2 million from the producer and Orion Pictures. The studio had tried to secure permission to use the segment from this album called Glassworks for the movie. Glass gave permission on condition that only two minutes of the piece were to be used, that there would be no rearrangement of the music, and that it would be background music, like that it would be playing on the radio. McBride used the song for seven minutes in the movie. It continually returns. Yep. He put uh, a French accordion over it and uh, a sexy sax solo over it. (laughs) Why are you looking at me? Just looking. Glass hit the roof when he found out about this. Uh, He called the use of the music mawkish and sentimental. And the capper, though, was that they didn't give him credit in the end credits for the movie. So he sued them. And in an out-of-court settlement, they dismissed the suit, but with conditions that he would receive credit on future releases of the film and a substantial royalty payment. So they had to redo the end credits to add a little note saying, Principal theme by Philip Glass. Uh, Orion denied all liability for what they did with his music, but they did settle the suit and there was no official soundtrack mm. release, but that is it's so very... funny. Cause I actually, cause that music was like, wow, that's so pretty. And then I found out that it was not only, um, Philip glass, <laughs> but that he wasn't credited for it. Either. It is so good though. It's, it's beautiful. It's, it's a beautiful song. And actually when it comes on, I, I had kind of caught it up to that point, but in the pool scene is the moment where it finally oh. came into like uh, relief for me where I was like, Oh, I know this song. This is a Philip glass song. Another interesting thing about it, and I don't know how this plays in at all, but the song is the first track on Glassworks, uh, subtitled Opening, just Opening. In the end credits of the movie, it is pluralized and is called Openings. And I, I noticed it and I was like, not when you mentioned that it was there was some sort of suit, uh, you know, that Glass was involved in, I was like, not only did they 
you know, have this huge fight to eventually get the credit in. But then at the end, they may have even messed it up and titled it wrong. <laughs> They're like, look, we made this our own thing. <laughs> Fuck you. We, we did what we it, it is openings now, right? We've added the sax. We've, we've added, added the all sax. the sexy kind of 80s stuff to it. It's over the top. Like, I'd be pissed, too, if I were Philip Glass and I hear sexy sax solo and French accordion over this. And I mean, like, I kind of like that version I mean, better. Like, You know what? It, I mean, it's it kind of sounds like Philip Glass filtered through Kenny G. And yeah. that's, you know, like yeah. part of the kind of sleaze and trashiness appeal of the it movie. It works. Yeah. It really works. <laughs> so then we see her waiting at a bus stop. Uh, interestingly, she's uh, in front of a cemetery. <laughs> yep. Uh, and the you know the, the hot winds are blowing, the music's still playing. Uh, and then Jesse pulls up in the pink sports car, and they start talking about the hot wind. You know, it's the like, Santa Anas. Yeah, <laughs> uh, another Steely Dan, uh, Babylon Sisters. Talks yes, about the Santa Ana winds. Here they come again. Yeah. He says, gotta love those Santa Anas, honey. Just stoking up the fire. Yes. It's like, come on, cool it, you two. <laughs> <laughs> Don't. Don't cool it, ever. She has an appointment with the professor that she's with, uh, who's promising to introduce her to, you know, a great architect. He drives her to the appointment, but then they stop at this incredible Mexican dive bar restaurant called Andy's Dog House. I looked it up. <laughs> it's gone now. Because I want to go there. It's so fucking cool. Okay, speaking of Tarantino, <laughs> they show the the signage for it, and it says Andy's Doghouse. And I was like, I swear that's like a name of a place that Tarantino would have in one of his movies. Like, doesn't it just sound like it's that? It's like a red apple cigarettes kind yeah, of thing. Yeah, it totally sure. is. Yeah. Yeah. So Jesse goes inside with Monica, and it's like bright red. Um, he's got to see somebody who owes him money, this guy named Carlito, who's played by Miguel Pinheiro, who has been the subject of conversation on this podcast because he plays Calderon on the first episode of the Miami Vice uh, <laughs> pilot. He's like a principal villain who comes and goes in the first few episodes. So Carlito warns Jesse that the cops are looking for him. And uh, there's also this very strange cameo. Bruce Valanche yes. is the guy in the bar that uh, <laughs> Gear robs him. And he's got a purse and Gear goes through... The, the purse to grab some money and this heart necklace, this kind of cheesy plastic <laughs> heart necklace. It's got a light, a little light inside. That Valanche just happens to, to give have. That, he just like, has it yeah. in, his, in his literal purse. <laughs> also, uh, let's talk about the scene where Monica goes uh, to meet her professor boyfriend because mm -hmm. uh, gear takes her there but he's really pissed off and then he says get out i never want to see you again and there's a very uh, cool camera move where she starts to run walk across the street and then she starts running and then he spins the car around and she almost gets sideswiped by another car uh <laughs> he's like blocking her way and sort of you know using the car as sort of like a uh, something to intimidate her with she does say that she's scared of him a few times even though she's with him uh, but, he, you know, for now, he's going to let her go off with the professor, and he drives off. And she, uh, you know, gets into the hotel. She's coming down the escalator to meet him, and he's a total square. Uh, he's making small talk about the architecture of the hotel, and he's like, you've heard of Frank Lloyd Wright? This is Frank Lloyd wrong. <laughs> and they're riding up the elevator, and, 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 and she's obviously still 
thinking about Jesse, and uh, it's a little beautiful moment because he's he's no competition for this, for for Richard Gere, but he he's so clingy and desperate about it. But you know, and he's like, "You seem distracted," and she's like, "No, oh, no, I'm fine." But we know, we know better. We know better. I want to talk about a scene that I really liked in the rewatch was the scene at the outdoor magazine stand Mm -hmm. where he's reading the Silver Surfer comic. (laughs) And uh, that's a very funny scene because this he and this teen start arguing about the Silver Surfer because Jesse won't have anybody say a bad word about the Silver Surfer. But this kid's like, Silver Surfer, he sucks. Why would he hang around Earth when he has the power to go anywhere in the cosmos? And he's like, maybe he likes to be here. Maybe he wants to help people. And and so obviously, Jesse thinks of himself as the Silver Surfer. I mean, this is the ultimate limitation of his character and her future with him. You know, she wants to be uh, an architect. He wants to be the Silver Surfer. (laughs) Yeah. And And the kid has his number. He's like, that guy's an idiot. (laughs) Like, he's not He sucks. Well, and then it comes back a little bit later on when uh, Jesse is introducing her to the Silver Surfer, to, to Monica to the Silver Surfer. And it actually is quite romantic. You know, there's like a very beautiful sort of, you know, kind of uh, admiration he has for this character and the way that the two of them have to love from afar. Uh, the Silver Surfer and, and his love interest in the comics have to love from afar. And you know, you're, you're kind of taken by it and, and you, you, you do receive it kind of warmly and realize, oh, there's sort of like this, you know, kind of quiet poetry to it. But the kind of crux of that idea is, uh, this is a a love, not just forbidden, but forever impossible. And that, you know, that kind of irony is now, uh, steeped into, this relationship where he's like, I, I identify as this character, as this silver surfer. Also, the woman he loves, uh, he's doomed to never actually be with. And he's just like me, uh, is now yeah. a thing that we have to like think about for the remainder of the film. But one reason why they're doomed is because of his actions, mm-hmm. which he's never stopped to think about. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Gear goes back to her apartment and and she doesn't come home that night and when she comes home in the morning <laughs> he's sitting in the bed with a gigantic mexican cartoonish mexican sombrero a on bedazzled and so sombrero <laughs> it has jewels <laughs> on it <laughs> and he's got the little mustache that he's made out of mascara or out something. of mascara yeah or like eyeliner he pops up in her in her bed shirtless giant sombrero huge shit-eating grin on his face he says like hola amiga or something like that (laughs) and he's like you fucked your professor last night didn't you you know it's it's so so gross gross, but it's also so funny and just like charming and silly and ridiculous and like i love getting to see gear be so playful because he's just not in so many of his films And I think um, on the matter of something I said earlier, which is that uh, McBride simultaneously like pays loving homage to Godard's film while also sort of like shitting on it and saying like this thing that you did, like I'm going to sort of twist it around and like, uh, you know, kind of pervert it. Um, This scene is a really great example. Um, Michelle wakes up in a, Patricia's apartment in uh, the 1960 uh, version 
you know, he's sort of being playful with her to a certain extent, but he's actually being quite mean to her. And they're having kind of, you know, serious cerebral conversations about love and life and William Faulkner and all these things. Um, And all of those same trappings are in this scene in the 83 version. But (laughs) it starts off with Richard Gere in an oversized sombrero that is like cartoonishly laughably large. So he's taking Mm -hmm. this like really key, very intimate, very cerebral moment in the Godard film. And he's like immediately saying like, no, like, fuck that. (laughs) I'm going to like ratchet the, the sort of like, wackiness and uh and ridiculousness of this moment i'm gonna pervert all of these things um so much so that even the conversation about faulkner is bastardized to a certain degree um they have the same conversation monica and jesse do that patricia and michelle have about faulkner but all of the wind is taken out of it because the line about all or nothing, which is what Michelle famously tells uh, Patricia in the six, 1960 version, Gear has already said in passing in an earlier scene when they're like in the, in the pool or something. He's like, it's all or nothing with me, baby, yada, yada, yada. They come back to it again when she brings up Faulkner after he's popped up in her bed in a sombrero and um, and she's like trying to have this conversation with him about, you know, the line like between uh, grief and nothing. I choose grief. And Gear's like, yeah, yeah, uh huh. No, nothing. I choose nothing. He sounds like a lot of laughs. Sounds like a lot of laughs. Did you fuck him? (laughs) No, it's all or nothing with me, baby. I already told you. And then he's on to the next thing. And I just, I love that. I love that McBride is ballsy enough to take these like very sacrosanct moments in French new wave cinema and in the history of cinema and just like say like, yeah, I'm going to do something else. And they don't matter as much as you think they do. And also like, I love them. I love that moment in the 1960 Godard, but I'm going to make it something else. And I'm going to put a fucking sombrero on it. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm going to use all that sort of pretentious Godard dialogue, but I'm also going to have two very, very attractive naked people. You're like, I don't fucking give a shit (laughs) about grief. If you're not interested in the dialogue, (laughs) you can just look at the body. Yes! It's so good. The horniest of the horny jail scenes is the uh, the long sequence that we were talking about earlier, where she's swimming in the pool and he uh, starts making out with her uh, hanging off the uh, diving board. It's weird because they have sort of like some contempt for one another and also incredible desire for one another. Yep. He gets interrupted when he's finally uh, making out with her by the answering machine turning on and it's the nerdy professor admitting that they had sex last night and... She's pissed off at him, and then he hears on the news that uh, the net is closing in on him, and he does what uh, he always does in the movie. Anytime uh, he's in trouble, he immediately stops thinking about what to do and starts thinking about having sex. Yep. (laughs) (laughs) Talk about, by the way, in this pool scene, a foundational, you know, Tarantino text. There's the line where Gear, uh, you know, across the pool tells Kaprisky, show me your tits. And she kind of says, fuck you. And he goes, okay, show me your toes. But that's in the original. Yeah. 
I know. That is also in the original. <laughs> but but he says women's toes are very important. Yep. It's like, yeah, tell me about it. <laughs> but I always get, I feel a little defensive of when people complain about Tarantino and they talk about the foot stuff with women. It's so obnoxious. It's it is. So it's so fucking annoying. stupid. And I've, just as an aside, I have made the argument that if Quentin Tarantino didn't look like Quentin Tarantino, I think people would have like less of an issue knowing about the things that he finds hot. Like Mm -hmm. it's also, I think just indicative of like um, American audiences, like will so willingly thirst over like Jeremy, what's his face in the bear or whatever. Right. Like they'll, you know, like, be openly horny for these people and like talk about like Pedro Pascal being a zaddy and like all this shit. Right. But like Quentin Tarantino, who's just like a pencil neck nerd, like the fact that we know what turns him on, like we don't want to know that. And that's like a bridge too far. And I think it's just like indicative of like one that he doesn't look a certain way that allows us to see him as a sexual person. And I also think like, Americans are just like inherently uncomfortable with like talking about what turns people on and there are only like certain lanes that that's okay. Um, Mm -hmm. I do want to bring up one exchange in the pool that I love. One of the ways that they pay homage to Godard's original is in these sort of like um, turns of phrase that they have uh, when they're talking to each other about various things about life and love and Monica asks Jesse what he wants and he says everything and she says that's too much and then he asks her what she wants and she says something and he says that's not enough it's a perfect crystallization of those two characters and their perspectives on life and like what drives them forward um, she's searching in one way because she's not quite sure what she wants. She wants something. And he's searching in another way because he wants everything, all or nothing, he says. It's just beautiful. His problem is he doesn't think enough. And maybe her problem is that she thinks too much. Yes. That's what both versions of Breathless are about. It's about the love between a man and a woman, except they are, they're they're not on the same wavelength. They are when they're in when they're having sex. They sure are, mm-hmm. but maybe not in life. And you know that becomes clearer and clearer as the movie goes on. L'amour fou, as they call it in France. Yes. Then they have sex again. In that uh, Gear starts hearing "Suspicious Minds" by Elvis Presley playing in his head, <laughs> and he starts singing. And he strips all his clothes off. They have sex in the shower. They're both fully nude. Then we see them having sex in bed, and we get to see both their bodies. I'm a return guy as well for seeing dicks on screen yes. of our movie stars. Mm-hmm. I am also a return guy for seeing dicks on screen. Yeah. It, was, it was a good leveling of the playing field when they roll over and you see gear flash dong a little bit. Like It's, it's important, mm-hmm. I think. Fucking love it. People were saying this is a male gaze movie. I, I say yes and no. Uh, they're forgetting that there are a lot of gay people who watch movies too, mm-hmm. who might also want to see Richard Gere's penis. And um, also, they're both sex symbols. It's not a movie where we don't understand why she's with him. We totally understand because uh, most of us wouldn't be able to turn down either of these people coming on to us. <laughs> nope. Yeah. They break the shower door. That's how hot yeah. their sex is. <laughs> yeah. This moment reminds me of uh, a, a 
uh, fun kind of moment that we've talked about on our show before with James Spader uh, at Con during an interview about Crash. Yes. Uh, which I've always found a very funny anecdote and a clever comeback to a, a reporter who I think is clearly searching for kind of a way to to make a leading question and sort of say, oh, this movie is sort of misogynistic. Uh, but there's they're kind of asking why there's so much female nudity and not any male nudity in it. And James Spader says, uh, most of the time in the movie, we're fucking. And when you're fucking, you can't see the penis, uh, which is which is very clever. And I science. think it's, it's science. But uh, I, I think in this movie, too, we get to see a lot of intimacy that isn't just the actual like copulation. It's a lot of the kind of like postcoital moments. It's a lot of the foreplay. And in those moments, you can and should see the penis. Carly, I read a review on Letterboxd and the review ended with, oh, and by the way, he went in. (laughs) (laughs) Did I write it? Is that the one Letterboxd review that I've written? Probably. (laughs) Carly, I've been dying to ask you this question. Very important. In the scene after they have sex and she gets up uh, to ask him whether she should wear the pink dress or the black dress, what's your opinion? Well, it's important that she wears both, right? She puts the black dress on first and then she changes. And she said, uh, she says something to the effect of like, I, I wanted to look different or whatever. Um, she says a woman should be allowed to change her mind. Yes, a woman should be allowed to change her mind. And I think that is the right answer, right? Like, I have days where I want to look like a sexy vampire. And then I have days where I want to look like, you know, I'm at the tennis court. Or whatever, like mm-hmm. doing like hot new like Hamptons tennis or something, <laughs> and she does both. Um, I think what works about the pink dress is so much of her is in pink in the whole movie. She has a pink towel. She has these like pink paintings in her apartment. Um, she's wearing like pink lip gloss a lot of the time and pink eyeshadow and. She's and wearing, he keeps driving up to her in pink cars. In pink cars. She's wearing a pink polo when they first uh, see her at UCLA. So the pink dress works. Um, but I really, really love her in black, too. And I think that that sort of, like, does a nice job of um, expressing those two sides of her. That also is a nice callback to the Godard film. Because in uh, the Godard film... Um, there's a conversation when they're in the car and Gene Seberg's character says something about like, oh, take me to Dior. I want to go. I want to go buy this a beautiful Dior dress. And Michelle says, no, you're going to find better dresses at the five and dime stores. Like, that's where we should go. Um, and that's like she sort of ends up changing at a certain point, too. She's in this sort of like very close fitting dress at one point, And then she switches into something that's a little bit more like. She's got a balloon skirt and it's got a collar and it's a little bit more sort of like Betty Draper. Um, And that dress sort of flip flop in the 83 version is a nice call to that. It's interesting that it also is sort of it kind of underscores her change of heart as well. It's one of the few moments where we kind of see gear actually answer her in a pragmatic way rather than a selfish way, which is the black dress looks better kind of in the environment that you are about to go to. I like you better in that for the purposes of the meeting you're about to attend. And when she makes the change, it's sort of like a a tangible expression of her mind being changed about him as well and saying like, I'm now conforming more to this kind of hyper feminine pink image 
uh, of myself that that you hold. I'm starting to kind of play the role a little bit more that you have in mind for me and have kind of made my decision about you. And in the previous scene, the night before, she's wearing white and black, you know, yep. like she's, you know, this is another sign that she's, uh, you know, falling under his sway. It's like a f- form of resistance when he says wear black and then she decides to wear pink. Mm-hmm. Yep. Um, guys are used to uh, women asking them what, what color they should use and then the women use the other color. It's yeah. true. <laughs> Very true. I was a- anticipating that that's where it was going to go. <laughs> Because I had seen images, images already of her in the pink dress. So yep. when he picks the black one, I was like, this is the moment where she makes a decision that is opposite whatever he says, but uh, not how it happens. But this is, I think, important to your comment, Aaron, about the sort of like moments of intimacy that take place that aren't necessarily just the penetrative act. And this is one of the reasons this movie is so carly coded, because I am a person who is in love with the sort of surrounding stuff of sex, like those moments, those intimate moments that are touching or laughing or about picking out clothes that can be intensely erotic, um, but are not at all, you know, a penis going into a vagina. Um, or or any sort of like um, sexual act like that is the stuff that like lights me up and this movie is filled just filled with those moments in fact their entire relationship is very little sex and it's all the sort of surrounding stuff of sex that is quite sexy I mean it's you know incredibly erotic um, but it's erotic because the both of them are both of them are despite their performances for one another. Um, and I mean the sort of like diegetic performances, like the airs they're putting on for each other. They are quite vulnerable with each other. Um, even though gear is often, you know, distracted or running around, he wants her um, and is, is kind of manic about it. And so all of this intimacy that surrounds the sex that they have, um, and the sex is incredible. There's a later sex scene in the theater, which we'll get to, that is like been building for the entire movie and it's just fucking gorgeous. But all the stuff that happens around it is deeply, incredibly romantic, incredibly erotic. And I love that this movie is able to say... It's able to speak the language of intimacy so adeptly because I think that a lot of films forget that not to get into a current day Twitter discourse, we will not, um, but that like the sex scene, finger quotes, capital TM, whatever, like isn't just sex like a movie about two adults is like ostensibly like all about sex and everything and nothing can be sexy and I like that this film very much asserts that and is comfortable navigating those waters and also how a woman can have her heart broken by somebody who seems so wonderful but is actually in love with himself really Mm -hmm. like she discovers towards the end of the movie that he's not all that interested in her future. He thinks of her as part of his future and he can't imagine her uh, not being a part of it, you know, and that's 
I guess, why she ultimately calls the cops. Yeah. She, you know, it's like she sends herself to horny jail. She <laughs> <laughs> no, she literally she does, does, though. Yeah. <laughs> she's, she's been, you know, drugged by her own pheromones and dopamine. And then she's like, I need to go it. into detox right now. The only way I can get rid of this guy is to make sure he goes to jail. Yeah. Uh, it's, uh, the fem- but- it's the feminine version of uh, post-nut clarity yeah. is what it is. <laughs> Let's get back to the plot. So after the sex scene, she's chosen the dress that she's going to wear. She says to him, I wish you wouldn't love me. You don't fit into my plan for my life. And Jesse says, well, you're going to just have to change those plans, darling. And then she tells him that she might be pregnant. I was like, how does she know that already? Oh, wait a minute. Yeah, they met a few weeks ago in Las Vegas. So that's why. she's. She informs him that she might be pregnant. He's very crestfallen about this. This was not part of the plan, going to Mexico. He just wanted to go with his good time girl down to Mexico, but now he has to be a dad and they have a kid and he puts up this front that it's going to be great. You know, he's, oh, we can have a little muchacho with us. Oh, that's really great. (laughs) But you can also tell, oh, fuck, you know? Yeah. And on top of everything else that's wrong, now I'm going to have a baby with this woman too. He goes outside uh, and then he discovers all these updates about his future. He sees the cops have discovered his car. He steals this blue Thunderbird, drives up to her apartment to take her away and uh, she's wearing a different color and he's driving a car in a different color, I noticed. Her dress is the color of his old car. Yep. You know. So there's this ridiculous camera movement as they're kissing in the car with Link Ray music playing. I mean, I love this shit. It's so good. It's great. (laughs) It's It's so, so good. And like the... The pink dress is instrumental here. So here we get to the answer of your question, which is that it should be the pink dress, right? For all of the reasons we've said, but also for this shot, because she is sitting in this cotton candy pink dress in this turquoise blue Thunderbird that is like impeccably painted. They're in, you know, the front seat of the car, just like, making out like gangbusters and the camera is circling around them at this like insane clip and it's just fucking breathtaking yeah, it's breathtaking it's just, this this movie is a sensory overload <laughs> it that's is one thing that i love about it one might utter the expression abu du souffle when they see it they might yeah yeah gear drops her off for her appointment with this uh you know this groundbreaking where she's going to get a real chance to meet the the architect that she wants to meet. He uh, goes to grab a newspaper and he sees his face is now on the front page as the main suspect in the murder of the highway patrolman. He sees somebody on the steps of the synagogue across the way reading the paper who's also looking at him. Like he's starting to be, uh, He's the net is closing in here. So Gear drives off to this auto salvage yard to go get paid. But, you know, uh, he's because he's a car thief. He's a uh, He's into auto theft, and unfortunately now he doesn't have the car that he had arranged to sell. Uh, so he gets into this huge fight with the guy at the auto salvage yard. I, I love the crane shots of this sequence oh. where Gears escaping on foot. It was very European. It reminded me of sort of uh, the way that a European would uh, film a fight scene. I mean, in, this movie doesn't have all that much to give back to Europe the way that uh, the original is so obsessed with America. Uh, but that is one of the elements that I think reminded me of, uh, you know, a French thriller or something. Mm-hmm. Meanwhile, Monica is confronted at her meeting with the great architect by the sleazy L.A. cops that have now uh, realized that, uh, you know, they've, they've, they've been following them all this time. The net is definitely closing in. So the cops interrupt her at this moment that could be good for her career. 
And uh, it's the great character actor John P. Ryan, the villain from Runaway Train. Mm -hmm. Always a pleasure to see him. He has this really greasy perm. He has that line where he says, (laughs) don't F-U-C-K with the LAPD to her. And like (laughs) she gets threatened with deportation. Then we go to that great visual sequence where um, Monica finally dumps Paul. And, you know, this whole sequence is down in Venice Beach. And so many of the shots are in telephoto of these gigantic outdoor murals. So the colors are constantly changing in the sequence. And, you know, again, this movie is total artifice, right down to the fact that nobody's actually playing a human being in this movie. Like, we're watching a movie about people who've been driven insane by movies, which I think is also what uh, Breathless is, too, the original Breathless. Yes. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yes. In that groundbreaking scene, too, can we talk briefly about the fact that uh, the brilliant architect that she's going to meet is uh, himself? Uh, it's a cameo by a, a French uh, production designer and, and filmmaker, uh, Eugène Laurier, I think is how you say his name. Uh, and it kind of echoes the Jean-Pierre Melville uh, cameo yep. from the yes. 1960 Breathless. And he sort of pops her balloon a little bit like she's like oh i really want to work with you and he's like why and says because i want to build things that last and he says nothing lasts Mm -hmm. yes within a couple of minutes she gets invited to be in this photo op with the architect and the police suddenly intervene and threaten her and she's crying and she's being threatened with deportation like she's fucked now like this opportunity nothing lasts indeed and uh so you know why shouldn't she just jump in with Jesse and take off with him? Mm-hmm. Because, uh, you know, she does love him and uh, she wants love in her life. And, you know, he certainly uh, acts like he loves her all the time. So what choice does she have? She's, she's in huge trouble. She might as well take off with him. She's carrying his baby. And so she makes this foolhardy, l'amour fou decision when uh, Gear suddenly drives up and interrupts the cop giving her a hard time. And jumps in the car with him and they're off and she seems deliriously happy like she's it's almost like she's lost her mind now <laughs> you know she will eventually come to her senses at by the end of the movie but she's trying really hard to mm-hmm. hold on to what she has i mean this is what even though what she has is running around with a fugitive from justice <laughs> yeah <laughs> literally but this is what's so shakespearean about the whole thing right like they're totally star-crossed like the it's never going to work. They say as much to each other, or at least she does to him. Um, and there is this like nihilism to their relationship, especially when she decides she's going to go on the run with him. You kind of know that it's not going to work out. Like even if you haven't seen the 1960 version uh, and don't know what's going to happen, you have that feeling that there is like, there is a, a, a fatality to the the relationship that they have and that it can't actually exist beyond this sort of like moment that they have. But they're movie characters. This is a movie and it's a movie about, you know, like crazy love, which is one of the great movie topics as far as I'm concerned. Mm -hmm. Yes. Let's talk about that great scene where they go to that above ground parking lot that seems to have a club in it. Amazing. (laughs) But I just love the idea of a, a parking garage being turned into a nightclub slash parking garage. <laughs> All the like spotlit dancers and just the like the movement. Mm-hmm. It's so good. It has a very Euro trash feel to it. Like those kind of yeah. like warehouse parties that you see in a lot of films of the 80s and 90s and stuff. I think about like the party in uh, Irma Vep that Maggie Chung tries to go to for a minute with the, the young woman who works in the costuming department. And it feel has that same kind of like 
uh, sleazy Euro trash vibe to it. Yeah. And then the cops raid it, and uh, we hear Message of Love from the Pretenders playing a great song. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thematically great, too, because uh, Chrissy Hind even mentions Brigitte Bardot, which, of course, plugs this movie back into Godard and Contempt. They they take off on this weird uh, little elevator that they hang on to to go down, <laughs> <laughs> and and the, there's a great underground uh, chase scene involving the, the her steering the car while he's trying to hotwire it into life, which reminded me of that funny scene in Licorice Pizza where they're driving the yes. truck really oh fast God, and like, yes. trying to get around the corners <laughs> and stuff. Like that's a thrilling scene, and uh, I realized while watching. Breathless, that uh, that's, he's, there you go. There's PTA calling back to Breathless. Yes. That sequence also feels a lot to me like the 70s body snatchers with them running around trying to escape from the police. And, you know, the the helicopters flying around with the spotlights, you Mm -hmm. know. Okay, so so here's the final major horny jail scene in the movie where they're running away from the cops. They've eluded them, and then they run into a movie theater where magically the back door is open. So they're in this really dingy movie theater in L.A., and uh, the audience is watching Gun Crazy, one of the great noirs, and certainly an influence on both Godard's Breathless and on -hmm. this. But this is a... Let's talk about this scene, because not only is it super sexy, but it makes literal what this movie is so much about, which is, uh, you know, l'amour fou and uh, lovers on the run and people who've watched too many movies. And, uh, you know, the the dialogue between the characters in Gun Crazy is mirroring the dialogue between Jesse and Monica. Mm -hmm. But let's go off on this scene. It's such a wonderful scene. And right before it, you know, like going around sort of like the, you know, kind of concrete and sort of almost brutalist architecture of this particular area of Los Angeles that they're running around in and hiding in these kind of corridors and nooks for it to open up into this sort of dusty kind of haphazard space that is very warm and bright and full of reds and this movie projecting, you know, in front of them that they're behind. Again, Breathless 1960 and Breathless 1983 are mirror images of one Mm -hmm. another, and we're seeing Gun Crazy backwards because they're behind the And I just love uh, how kind of uh, primal the dialogue gets for a moment there where they they break in after this pursuit, and it's almost like a a kind of moment of levity and, and reprieve. And Richard Gere very excitedly and sweatily looks at Valerie Caprici and goes, movie. Yeah. That's like, which is like true, but that's like yes, true. I'm just, just like gonna say that it's just like true romance. Yep. <laughs> They're sit, he's sitting there eating the popcorn, watching Sonny like, Chiba up on the big screen, just like yep. a shit eating grin on his face. <laughs> um, this scene is just gorgeous. It's just gorgeous. I mean, like he says to her, "You're a knockout kid," and it's like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like she's so she's so beautiful. Mm-hmm. He's so beautiful. This whole scene is so beautiful, but they are doomed. They're doomed. But that's why this scene has to happen, right? This is like the Shakespearean quality of it. You have that final like moment where they get to have this sort of pure, unadulterated expression of their connection and their sexuality and just like the, the pure romance of it all, the high romance of it all in the back of a theater behind a movie screen. Like it's everything that this movie is about. It's like saying like, okay, fine. French new wave. Sure. You fucking got it. But also like, uh, here's my movie. (laughs) 
<laughs> and I am going to like vehemently assert like the romanticism and and the fantasy that is necessary in a cinematic experience rather than deride it or chop it up. I'm going to fully submerge you in it. And I'm also going to like quite literally put you in like the place where this magic happens and you're going to have sex there and it's going to be so romantic. Like they're like a wash in red light. Then they're set, you know, behind them is this black and white ginormous projection, uh, mirrored projection of gun crazy. And it's, you know, their faces up close and he Richard Gere's character says um, they're like tossing around in like, you know, the canvas that you have when you're in a theater for something or other. Um, and they're like raptor. It's like the tarp that they would it's have like to put the tarp, the seats yes. or something. Yeah. And they're having sex and, you know, they're they're breathing heavily and it's just like really intense moment. And he stops her and he looks at her and he says, open your eyes oh my God, like I just like my heart just like skips a beat and like I'm just like nothing but butterflies because that is like, that's that's the thing about them, right? Like they are missing each other for like the entirety of this movie and they're like talking past each other and wanting each other but fighting and whatever. And, and in this moment, he says, open your eyes and they connect and it foreshadows their eyes connecting at the end of the film, which we will get to. But I love that line. And I think that it is incredibly important because without it, you cannot have the following events be as tragic as they are. The music from the Gun Crazy soundtrack is the background music now for this sequence. And, you know, it's uh, it's so overheated that everybody's red. It's almost like they're under heat lamps. And then the camera tilts up while the two of them are making love to the screen fading to black and then coming up on a gumball machine and a bullet blasting right through it. It's just such a well-done sequence. It's perfect. And then they go to this place to hide for the night, which is significant too because it's this old estate that Errol Flynn used to live in called The Pines, which is um, at the time that they made this movie, it had fallen into disrepair and it was being used by vagrants to sleep in. And, you know, uh, we see when they're driving through the gates because they crack the the main fence open to drive the, the car through. We see some people having like a lightsaber fight <laughs> with like <laughs> the tennis court. Right. <laughs> I don't know what's going on there. Um, and they have a, you know, and it kind of looks like um, Michael Mann's heat when they're up on the top of the hill looking at the city of L.A., uh, as it turns out, this is Jesse's last night on the earth. The night turns into day, and she's feeling very sentimental about him. They're, th- this is their big plan to go to Mexico. He's got to meet with his friend who he met at the nightclub who's going to give him some money that he owes him so that they'll have some money to go to uh, Mexico. But then she's asking questions that he can't answer, like, where, you know, do you love me? And he's like, yeah, sure. So what are we going to do for money when we're in Mexico? Does this mean that I'm going to become an outlaw? Like, do we have to become thieves? And he's like, I don't know. And he's like dancing around. He's not giving her any answers. She's like, um, 
I don't know about this guy. You know, you can kind of tell that she's she's she has the opportunity here. When he says, be useful, go down the hill and go get some breakfast. I need a quart of milk and some ding-dongs. <laughs> it's like, again, with this guy who's like 33 going on 14. Yep. Yep. Like, I need breakfast, ding-dongs, and <laughs> a carton of milk. It's very Tarantino. She walks away in his jacket significantly, his which he also was given to wear by someone mm-hmm. else. She goes into town, basically, and uh, James Hong is the storekeeper. We always love yes. to see him. There's your um, Big Trouble in Little China. Connection. That's what yep, I was thinking I when was you mentioned say, it earlier. <laughs> I know what the fuck I'm talking about. <laughs> he says that she looks familiar, but he can't place it. And then she goes out to a newspaper box and sees that she's on the front page today as the girl in the pink dress who's with Lou Jack, the fugitive. She makes a beeline right to the payphone, calls the cops. Then she gets back up the hill and gives <laughs> Richard Gere his milk and ding-dongs and says, I've called the police. I can't be with you. Well, first I want to say it's really important that she tells him that the reason that she calls the police on him is because she says, I know you won't stop, fo- like, you won't stop finding me. You won't stop like looking for me. And the only way that you will go and leave and save yourself is if I call the police on you. Um, and importantly, he decides not to do that. (laughs) (laughs) So this is where the kind of arc of his character being, you know, completely selfish is a little bit muddied at the end because he asks her, okay, well, if I'm going to go, you have to tell me you don't love me. And she hesitates and he's looking at her and he's like, you can't do it, can you? You can't do it. You love me. And she looks up at him with her big puppy dog eyes and she says, I don't love you. And we know she's fucking lying. Like Mm -hmm. we know that she loves him and that the reason she's called the cops on him is because she loves him because she wants him to leave. And so he decides he's going to go. And then in a flash, just like every other decision he's made, he says, no, there are a thousand ways to leave Los Angeles. I'm going to get my money and we're going to go together. Like we're doing this basically. Like I'm not going to flee. You're coming with me. And he goes and gets the money from his friend who's driving this cute little, I don't know, it's like a Morgan or a Carmen Ghia or something. Another great <laughs> little car. Um, And he tells his friend, the cops are after me. I've got to go. And the guy says, here, take this gun. And they're actually right behind him. Like they're in in frame. And like the Godard film, Michelle and Jesse both throw the gun away. So they've killed the cop in the beginning of the movie. They're not going to do it again, ostensibly. And his friend is like, bro, like, what are you doing? You're crazy. Like, you take the money take the gun like protect yourself Richard Gere's character runs away from the car Monica is coming out toward him and she's emerged from these like sort of vine covered decrepit gates of the pines and she's looking at him and he's looking at her and the cops are in the background and the gun gets tossed to him by his friend and lands at his feet And what does he do? He starts singing Jerry Lee Lewis's Breathless. (laughs) And this goes back to your point, Jesse, of like, whenever he's in danger, he recedes. 
an important thing to note too is that he starts singing Jerry Lee Lewis. It starts to kind of almost soundtrack behind him too and and play in the background. And this is on top of the already like extremely heightened, like swelling orchestral score over it. So all of these sounds and this cacophony of music all building to this moment. But in a hint about, you know, how deranged Jesse ultimately is, is that we start to hear the music on the soundtrack of Jerry Lee Lewis, and then it cuts out, like Godard would always cut the music out, and then we only hear Jesse singing it to himself, and like, you know, the music is definitely playing in his own head. Yes. He only has a few more seconds to live, and, you know, she says, I love you to him, and then he looks at the gun that's down on the ground, and he reaches for it, and he turns around to the, face the cops, freeze frame, roll credits. In the original version of this movie, they did show Richard Gere getting shot to death by the police, but it tested badly. So they decided instead to end the movie with the freeze frame just before his death, which I think was the right call because I'm positive he died at the end. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And then all of a sudden we hear the, the band X and their rapid version of the song Breathless over the end credits. And, you know. Lights, lights come up. It's time to go home. <laughs> it leaves you with a lot. And I think that the, the still frame that it ends on is so perfect. It's the, gorgeous. They, they find just such like a perfect framing of him physically in the moment where, you know, you, you just see his body with his head kind of cut off. His legs are bent at a kind of an interesting angle. The gun is drawn. Uh, and I, I love it. It just it leaves you for a moment, which is this lingering kind of it's not even dread i don't know what it is it's it's a it's a whole mixture of things lots of emotions all at once and you sort of know that the conclusion here is foregone i think that last shot of him as the freeze frame is supposed to call back to a comic book panel mm-hmm. that that would be like the silver surfer yes oh i hadn't thought of that With the last image that we see is almost like a comic book frame except it's the death of the Silver Surfer. I also think one other significant alteration between the two versions is that in the Godard version, Seberg's character comes across more as that she betrayed Mm -hmm. Omondo's character. Like she sells him out to the cops. Kaprisky, we understand why she did what she did. She didn't betray him. She even says, I love you at the end. It's 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 not as negative a portrayal of what you can expect from a woman. No, I mean, it's much more believable that the two of them are in love in the 83 version, uh, which is another reason I, I find it better than the, <laughs> than the Godard version. Well, and it's it's attempting to, I mean, it, it is a, a romance, first and foremost, and I think that Godard's original is more of a kind of crime fiction, more of a noirish kind of, you know, homage. And so that, that sort of femme fatale quality to it and that ending that's, you know, very despondent and very kind of detached from you know, the witnessing of this murder, which also echoes, by the way, uh, an earlier scene in which Belmondo's character sees a man like dead on the street and just sort of kind of drags his feet past him without Mm -hmm. taking much notice. Uh, And then she has her kind of like repetition of lines where because she's an American in in, uh, France is constantly kind of asking about the significance or the meaning of a particular word. And she does that kind of in that that close up frame. And, And you can tell it's it's barely registering to her that there's this death that she's just witnessed. Yep. And again, uh, you know, the gear character is nothing if not consistent because he turns all the things that he's afraid of, which are, you know, being caught, being stopped, facing consequences, facing responsibilities. It all gets turned into sexual energy and he lives, he dies as he lives. It's this very passionate last moment, his last breath, Mm -hmm. if you will. Yes. It's beautiful. 
I push back on on the people that say this movie's vapid, that it's uh, male gazy, that it's uh, superficial. There's a lot here. It took 40 years, I think, for people to start rehabbing it. Like, uh, you know, you can watch Breathless this summer on the Criterion channel, you know, like where it belongs. You can watch both of them on Criterion, in fact. Mm -hmm. That's what I did. I also want to say as we close our conversation, I'm going to put a link to it in the show description. But the trailer that Orion put together for Breathless is one of my favorite movie trailers. so fucking good. Very good. (laughs) It's just like, I mean, I'm going to quote myself here. But (laughs) it's just movies like it's like movies a thousand exclamation points it's so fucking good it's like what what i want to say about this film and i could say so many more things but i will i will end with this which is that this is one of the few films that engendered in me not just the feeling of being breathless because I was catching my breath watching this movie so many times. Um, But also recreated in me the experience of like falling for someone. Like there are moments in this movie that make me swoon and kind of like make my heart a flutter the way that like you feel when someone you want wants you back or tells you something that just like sends electricity down your spine. This movie made me feel those things. (laughs) Like that's what I think is so remarkable about this film. It's like, it is beautiful and cinematic in all of the ways that we have talked about, but it also is one of the few films that I think actually like generates the, physical chemical experience of like lust and romance and like just being head over heels for another person I can't think of another film that like like I can think of a film that like emotionally gets me there but does not like physically change the molecules in my body and makes me feel as if I am in love and this movie does that and i think that's just like so special and so rare jesse i just have to say i'm so honored that i got to talk about this movie with you and that like in separate corners of the world Separated by many years and experiences, you and I both (laughs) just were watching this film and losing our fucking minds for it. And I'm really, really happy that we like came together and have crossed orbits in such a way that would allow us to talk about this film together. I'm very pleased. I was like Castillo in Miami Vice, uh, you know, because we had already done uh, to agree to do a Gear Primal Fear episode. But then a couple of weeks later, you were tweeting how much you love Breathless. And I was like, what did you say? Did you say that you love Breathless? Okay, we're recording a, we're doing two gear episodes in a row, Carly. That's my shit, man. <laughs> like <laughs> the wages of gear. Exactly. The wages of gear. So, Aaron Carly, we're part of the same podcast universe. We've done crossover episodes many times, but tell my newer listeners about your show. I know most of my uh, my faithful listeners know about you guys already. I, I know that people were excited that we were doing a 
crossover episode again. But um, tell my new listeners about your show. Well, we are a small entity. I was going to say we are oh. an infamous uh, film Twitter small entity, did, which I was very surprised not to see junk filter a part like, of. Yeah, I was like, hey, it's, man. You're is too- for, for context here, uh, a uh, Twitter user, Punish Lobster, I think is his name, something like that, found a Reddit thread a, a reply section I, that i believe comes from a uh, a large movie podcasts subreddit uh where somebody asked the question what is film twitter like what accounts uh and then a person replies with a quite thorough list of various people from around the, the twitter sphere uh many of which are friends of hit factory and junk filter who have been on our, our shows respectively thorough but deranged a little deranged and and the also kind of given unique uh categories as well and for whatever reason there were many podcasters and podcast networks mentioned but hit factory made a line item that was small entity alongside a uh, screen slate uh, so I, I don't know why we are are not considered ourselves a podcast, but uh, I'll take small entity. It was it was uh, both shocking and kind of uh, kind of rewarding to be uh, included. It feels like we may have finally made it. Whereas I was insulted because I was like <laughs> I've worked very hard for the reputation that I have on on Twitter, and uh, for, to be slighted like this felt kind of like you know when Christopher Plummer didn't get an Oscar nomination. <laughs> yes, yeah, and it's like come on. It's a huge miss. Come it's a on. huge miss for this person. You know. For the record, I will just say I was not named either. Like it was like Hit Factory podcast was. So I really, I really think this person just like doesn't have good taste <laughs> is what it boils down to. It just means that there's something to shoot for. Yeah. You know, you I also think, Jesse, like you're like too good. Like when you look at that list, you're like, OK, this person is like naming things that like a lot of people who like don't have a ton of experience with film Twitter would name. And then like some very niche, like weird random, like some weird ones that have just kind of crossed, crossed their nose probably through retweets or whatever. It was a profound injustice that junk filter was not included. No, literally Jesse, like when Aaron was telling me about this, this list, like I was like, wait, why isn't Jesse on here? (laughs) And Aaron was like, it's really fucked up actually. Like, Uh very famous film Twitter representative Jane Altoids uh, mentioned and and kind of cited something remarkable about the list too that uh, it's uh, severely lacking in many uh, of the LGBTQ accounts that I would consider that compose a large portion of film Twitter. Yeah. Uh, so it's 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 certainly a uh, kind of myopic view of of what that space is and and who's in it. And as Oscar Wilde once said, it's better to be talked about than not talked about. <laughs> I agree. No, uh, no such thing as bad publicity, I suppose. Uh, but to answer your question thoroughly, Jesse, about Hit Factory podcast for those who have never listened to it, uh, we are uh, infamous film Twitter small entity and a podcast about the films of the 1990s specifically. We like to delve into that decade. Uh, we are not. Uh, I think uh, one of those nostalgia-laden uh, kind of rosy-eyed podcasts. We like to get into uh, the the politics of the era and of the films that we watch and definitely approach them from a more materialist lens and, and kind of understand them in the greater context of what was happening uh, sociopolitically at the time and also within Hollywood and the kind of stories that we were telling. So that's what we do there. 
we have a Patreon for the show, patreon.com slash hitfactorypod, and uh, you can follow along with us uh, at, at hitfactorypod on Twitter. For now, anyway. I'm there. Follow me. I talk about stuff that isn't movies. That's true. Deep Impact Crier, because I cry watching Deep Impact, which is a very good movie. Well, obviously, we're going to do this again someday. You're one of my fave people to talk to. We love to, you. And uh, this, was, this was a wonderful conversation. Let's, let's do it again sometime uh, later let's this year. Please. Absolutely. If you're enjoying this podcast and you'd like to support the show directly, we do have a Patreon. And patrons get access to every episode of Junk Filter, including all of this summer's sidebar series on Miami Vice. To become a patron, please go to patreon.com slash junkfilter. And please follow us on Twitter at junkfilterpod. We'll have another episode of the show in the next few days. The original music for this program was provided by Marker Starling. My name is Jesse Hawken. Thank you for listening.